From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. An electoral shakeup in South America as Brazil picks a controversial new president, and Germany is headed toward a new leader of, of its own, although how quickly is a matter of question as uh, you know, people start speculating anew about Angela Merkel's fate. This is Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I am Joseph Sternberg coming to you from our luxury podcasting studio on the banks of the River Thames in London. I am joined today by my colleague in New York, Mary Anastasia O'Grady, our America's columnist. Hi, Mary. Hi, Joe. Thanks for coming on today, because we are going to start in the part of the world that you know best in Brazil. And, you know, this is a story that is all over the global media today. Um, A uh, politician named Jair Bolsonaro, uh, a former army captain, uh, member of Congress, uh, has just been elected president, 55 plus percent to uh, 44 percent in a runoff on Sunday. And, yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about this election because this is being presented as a complete unmitigated disaster uh, in many quarters of the media who are picking up on the fact that uh, Bolsonaro is really a Trump-like figure in Brazil. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern about his tendency to make untoward comments about uh, minorities. There's a lot of concern about his governing style that might uh, you know, veer toward the authoritarian, which is a very touchy subject in a country with a relatively you know, recent 20th century history of uh, military rule. And so I think that the, the big question that a, a lot of us are asking ourselves there is how worried should we be about uh, Bolsonaro's win? I mean, is this the case of the the chicken littles uh, complaining again about one of these unconventional leaders getting elected, and then it actually turns out uh, not to be the the disaster we were told to expect, or should we actually be worried in this case? Well, it's interesting. Thank you. It's interesting that, um, uh, you know, he has this um, media reputation as an authoritarian. And as you point out, I mean, the um, military dictatorship only ended in the mid-80s, which is to say that Brazilians cherish their democracy. They cherish their democracy, and yet they voted for this guy. So I think that that says something about whether or not he is actually a threat. And I I think one of the reasons why I'm not particularly worried about that, um, there are other things that worry me, but um, is because I think that Brazil's institutions work pretty well. I mean, for a developing country, um, you saw this in the corruption scandals um, of the last um, few years when the courts, first of all, the federal police, um, backed by the courts, allowed an investigation against the president to go forward. They unearthed enormous amounts of corruption. And even when they started to peel it back and find um, that this went very high up in the uh, in in the government and in business, that those um, investigations were allowed to continue. So I think it says a lot about um, the development of institutions in the country. And I think because Brazilians care so much about their um, their um, democracy, I do not see a problem in terms of an authoritarian or, um, you know, a military government coming back into power. In fact, if anybody was a defender of military governments, 
it was um, the former uh, president, Lula da Silva, and his um, successor, Dilma Rousseff, they both uh, subsidized military governments in uh, dictatorships in uh, both Venezuela and Cuba. So um, I think that's a, a miss. Um, a, a mistake to think that that he's a problem. Um, the left did not like, does not like this candidate because uh, number one, he's socially conservative, um, and you know they 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 want the government very much involved in social um, in in their view of how um, uh, social uh, policy should go forward. But they also, you know, they don't like his. Um, uh, talking about limited government and uh, in, independent central bank, and uh, you know, getting the government, the state, out of um, uh, certain businesses, opening the economy, um, and most of this is coming from his chief economic advisor, a guy called Paulo Gages, who is a University of Chicago trained economist, very much of a market liberal. I know him, and he's extremely passionate about. Um, liberal economics. The one thing I would say when I mentioned that, you know, there are some concerns is it's not clear to me that Bolsonaro has completely bought into the ideas of market liberalism. And um, we'll have to see how that goes because he spent 27 years as a congressman and he's known um, to vote against privatization, um, against pension reform, two really big subjects that need to be addressed from a market perspective. And, um, you know, some people think that he has moved in the direction of market liberals, um, but that remains to be seen. Now, I want to come back in a minute to this question of what uh, you know, Bolsonaro will actually do on the policy front uh, you know, once he's in office. But uh, before we get to that, I mean, I just wanted to pick up on this issue of corruption that you mentioned, because I think that it, one of the things that I have found frustrating uh, from afar and also not being an, an expert in uh, you know, Brazilian politics myself, but reading a lot of the media coverage about this election has been the extent to which people really downplay the the fact that Brazilians might reasonably have thought that they didn't have uh, good choices in the selection. I mean, uh, so uh, Jair Bolsonaro is running against a gentleman named Fernando Haddad, uh, but he seems to uh, you know, really be coming out of the political camp of uh, you know, former presidents Lula da Silva, Dilma Rousseff, both of whom have been uh, implicated in various corruption allegations over the years. And, you know, you, you have the sense that, that voters are probably sitting there scratching their heads thinking, well, you know, even if we are being told that Bolsonaro is a threat to all that is uh, right and good in the world and uh, you know, is a, a real problem because he is socially conservative, even though you know, I, I guess there's per, perhaps a question about how out of touch he really is with um, you know, most Brazilian voters on, on that score. But, you know, voters can be thinking even if there are problems with him, there are also a lot of problems with the, um, you know, left, you know, left leaning governments that we've had in recent years. So I don't think that you can say that this is necessarily at all an irrational choice on the part of Brazilians to go that route. Well, that's right. And let's remember that this was a second round vote. So in the first round, you had a whole series of candidates. Um, and that was on October 7th. And um, so the, what we had on October 28th was just a, a runoff between the two winners. 
And I think one of the reasons why, I mean, there's a number of reasons why Bolsonaro kind of rocketed to the top, even though he came from this little party and he was sort of unknown. And one of them is that he was one of the few politicians and from one of the few parties in Brazil that was untarnished by this huge scandal that was um, basically what happened was, um, you know, large construction companies would pad their bids. Um, for work that they were going to do either for Petrobras or some or for the government. And then from that padded, when they won the bid, then they would give kickbacks um, to the politicians and the business elites would take um, uh, a cut as well. And it was massive. I mean, Ojebrek, um, which was one of the big construction companies, actually had a department of bribery. And um, that's how audacious they were. Bolsonaro was not tainted by any of this. I mean, and by the way, this hit many of the big parties in Brazil. So he was one of the ones who was considered clean after all of this explosion, and there was ick on everybody. Um, the other thing is that, um, you know, he's he's um, been uh, willing to speak very uh, forthrightly in an era of political correctness that I think on some level, people are tired of. And, you know, it's, um, you can say, well, you know, he's too outrageous, you know, he, but I think that somehow, on some level, people just said they're tired of being told how to think on issues that are really more personal than, than governmental. And I think for those reasons, he, um, he 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 became sort of a a phenomena and as i said in my column today you know they found him refreshing warts and all so it's not like any any of his problems or any of his uh, flaws were not well known to the voters it's just that in comparison to this enormous corruption scandal and the really poor management of the economy i mean if you're poor and the the economy where you live goes into recession for three years. Okay, you don't. I mean, poor people don't have large savings. Um, they lose jobs, and they really have to scrounge. And you know, ten uh, sorry, fifteen years ago, when Fernando Henrique Cardozo was leaving office, Brazil had very promising prospects. And first, we got Lula for eight years, and then another five, almost six years of Dilma Rousseff. That's all PT government. And over that period of time, they just destroyed the economy while they were stealing all this money. So, you know, you're right They that, you know, voters kind of looked at that and they said they wanted some, they wanted something that was new, something that was the opposite of what they had been living with. And I think it, in many ways, Bolsonaro just personified that. Well, you know, I think in terms of this quest for something new, I mean, voters clearly are going to get that in terms of the approach, um, you know, the rhetoric, some of the smashing away at the political correctness that you were talking about. But I do think that, uh, you know, we also need to touch on this, uh, you know, question of what are voters actually going to see on the policy front. Now, I mean, one, one of the things that I, I thought was so interesting about your, your column, uh, you know, listeners can find it on the website. The headline is uh, Bolsonaro Takes Brazil. You know, you point out that also there were some state elections going on, and actually one of the big winners uh, in a state, uh, the state of uh, Minas Gerais, um, you know, is a fellow named Zima, who is actually a, uh, you know, free market 
classical liberal reformer. Um, you know, certainly Bolsonaro himself on the national stage seems to have been, uh, you know, picking advisors from that kind of uh, economic policy tradition. I mean, is this actually a sign that? You know, whatever uh, you know, Bolsonaro's personal commitments might be on some of this. I mean, is, you know, is this is there a new receptiveness to that kind of argument on Brazilian voters, and what might be some of the first uh, practical steps that you can look for from a Bolsonaro presidency that tell us if he's on the right track? Well, I think yeah, there's definitely um, a shift. I, I would say the majority of population does not vote ideologically. They they vote in terms of, I mean, they voted really here um, with their uh, in as a way to express their disappointment with the PT. Most of them, or a large number of them. But there's something else happening in Brazil, which you're sort of touching on when you reference the Novo Party in Minas Gerais. Um, the Novo Party is, as you say, a free market uh, classical liberal party. They're also a new party. Um, and I think that they that that victory and the existence of that party is a reflection of many decades of um, intellectual work. You know, we always talk about how ideas matter. And um, liberals, I mean, classical liberals, people who believe in free markets, limited government, low taxes, sound money, those people have been toiling away below the ra- radar since at least, uh, I would say, the 70s or 80s, trying to convince um, intellectuals that this is the way that Brazil needs to go in order to grow faster. And I think in this election, you saw uh, some of their work coming to fruition. Now, in the case of Bolsonaro, I, I still say that we don't know where he's going to come out there. I, I'm not convinced yet that he's really a, dedicated to these ideas. But, for example, in Minas Gerais and in other places in the country, you're seeing this kind of, in terms of the intellectual um, class, you're seeing a surge in these kinds of ideas that, you know, Brazil needs to finally open the economy more. It needs to um, have uh, a, a lesser role for government in, say, Petrobras. Um and though, and maybe even get a central independent central bank, which it doesn't have. Um, so those are like really important, um, I would say, um, advances for Brazil. Again, I, I don't want to get overly optimistic here because you have a huge welfare state. It's going to be extremely difficult for Bolsonaro to govern, even if he is committed to these ideas, because in Congress you have. I think about 30 parties. It's extremely fragmented, and he's going to have to herd these cats. Um, obviously, the the more he does early on when he clearly has a mandate, the better off he'll be. Um, but I think that that is going to be very difficult. I think the first thing that we should watch is pension reform because the Brazilian Congress has been trying to do pension reform for you know since Dilma left office, and they've tried before that, and they've never been able to get it done. And it is a huge fiscal cost to um, the, the the Treasury. So if they can do this pension reform, and the I, my understanding is that the idea they have would be to do something along the lines of what Chile did that would allow people to save um, privately for their pensions, um, that will be, uh, number one, a big uh, signal that 
they're serious about this agenda. And number two, it would be a huge um, accomplishment for um, Bolsonaro. I mean, that does seem to globally be the, the big trend here that I think that we're detecting, which is that uh, you know increasingly we're finding in a lot of these elections around the world that it is uh, becoming easier and easier to rally voter frustrated voters behind unconventional uh, politicians but then you're always stuck with this challenge of how is the unconditional politician actually going to deliver on a day-to-day basis once they're in in power so I, I do think that that's going to be the big challenge to watch in in brazil we've been talking brazilian politics in flux and this is foreign edition from the wall street journal this episode is brought to you by vanta Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Foreign Edition. Welcome back to Foreign Edition. I am Joseph Sternberg here with my colleague in New York, Mary Anastasia O'Grady. And we are now going to move uh, for just a few minutes to my part of the world, uh, Europe, where we have a pretty significant uh, story in German politics developing at the moment. Uh, Angela Merkel, uh, Germany's long-serving chancellor, she's been in office for about 13 years now, had been expecting to serve out a fourth term until 2021. And her government uh, increasingly seems to be in danger. Uh, There are growing questions about whether she will make it to 2021. Uh, After a series of bruising uh, defeats for her Christian Democratic Union and their Christian Social Union sister party, uh, first in Bavaria and then in the state of Hesse, um, this weekend just concluded, uh, Merkel has announced that she is actually going to uh, accelerate her departure from the leadership of her party. She's going to step down in early December as the party chairman clear the way for, for someone else. And you know, Mary, I, I find this a very interesting story. Uh, I mean, it's certainly interesting in the context of German politics, which we've thought uh, you know had been stable for so long and now appears not to be, but also because it is showing uh, the extent to which voters everywhere are uh, growing frustrated with their existing political classes. I mean, in Germany, the economy has been pretty healthy. Certainly the 2015 migration crisis uh, was enormously controversial, straining uh, the, the German state and the, the society in a lot of uh, ways. Um, and, and yet, you know, that, that influx has, has slowed to a trickle. So it seemed like there wasn't an immediate uh, you know, crisis anymore. And yet, uh, even in, in that kind of environment, the voters are uh, turning away from established parties and politicians like Angela Merkel, and they are, are casting about uh, you know, for parties like the far-right alternative for Germany, the uh, AFD party. They're also turning to the Greens and the center-left um, you know, instead of the, the Social Democrats, who had been a ruling party at uh, you know, various times in the past. I mean, globally, the, the message both in Germany and Brazil seems to be that voters are frustrated and they want something more than the conventional politics we've had for the past few decades. Yeah, well, I I mean, from where I sit, I see huge differences between what happened in Germany and what's happened in Brazil. But the one 
Um, one of the uh, observations I would make is just that I think at some point voters do fatigue of one party. And that's why, you know, it's great to have political competition and serious players in all parties. You know, we want strong parties um, even on the other side because it makes both sides uh, perform better. That's the beauty of competition. Um, but the other thing that strikes me is that I think in the case of Germany and for Angela Merkel, um, the migration crisis remains a sort of something that, that tarnished her and, and weakened her and just um, sort of, you know, damaged her in the long run, even though, as you say, it's it's gone to a trickle. And I think there's something for us to learn here in the United States about that, which is that, you know, for those of us who are pro-immigration, it's so important to support a and sort of a, a methodical way to handle large waves of immigration. And when we don't, and, and in her case, they wasn't handled well, um, it turns people against the concept of immigration. We want to continue to have support for immigration. We need to have a system in place that can absorb large numbers or you know, keep them from coming in, even if it's necessary to delay their, um, their move. Yeah, I mean, that immigration angle uh, in Germany is you know, really fascinating and so much more fascinating than I think that people probably would have expected at the beginning. Because, I mean, at the start of this uh, you know, political change a couple years ago, uh, you know, the theory was that this uh, you know, tide of uh, migrants from the Middle East that uh, Angela Merkel welcomed in uh, in 2015 was really going to embolden the far-right uh, AFD party, who were the most clearly anti-immigrant uh, party in uh, German politics. And yet, uh, you know, in some of these recent elections, uh, some of the biggest winners have actually been the Greens, who are absorbing a lot of votes from the, the Social Democrats, who are actually you know, tied up in a very unwieldy left-right grand coalition with Merkel right now. Um, and, you know, the Greens themselves have been very divided on the issue of migration and, and how to respond to all of this. Uh, well, the, the, no, the Social Democrats have. The Greens have been very clearly pro-migrant and voters seem to be supporting them. I think that really, you know, to go to your point, what this is saying is that voters were really frustrated with the sense that Merkel didn't really have a clear idea of how to manage uh, the migrant wave in 2015. The, the, first, the message was open doors and gradually uh, she allowed other elements of her party to, to drag her toward a, a more uh, closed border, a more restrictive uh, approach. And you know, I think that the, the message isn't maybe the, necessarily that voters are inherently anti-migrant these days. It's just that they want to feel like someone is in charge and actually has a plan uh, and a vision for how migration is going to fit into the country, you know, into the broader politics or society. And that can either be in a more open immigration uh, direction like the Greens or a more restrictive direction. I think that maybe voters are just getting frustrated with a lot of this, you know, trying to hang out in that, that muddled middle uh, that a lot of parties do and try to avoid making decisions. Yeah, I think, the um, you know, you've reminded me <laughs> talking about that, that the the one thing that Brazil and, and Germany both are going to have, you know, have a lot in common is that there are very strong special interests that don't want to let go of what they're, you know, what they're benefiting from. And, um, you know, I think that in her coalition working across the aisle, 
Um, it was very hard for her to, you know, break through any of those special interests, which, you know, require some kind of reform. And I know that in Brazil, I mean, this will be a big problem for Bolsonaro when he tries to, you know, modernize the economy. There's so many special interests. I'm not talking about, you know, poor people who get some kind of a welfare benefit. I'm talking about businesses that very much uh, benefit from, you know, the status quo of a of a less than flexible economy. And I think that was a big challenge for Merkel. Well, and it's funny you mentioned that uh, because uh, certainly it's not anywhere on the order of the, the kind of scandal that, that plagues Brazil, but actually Germany has had its own version of a corporate special interest corruption scandal in recent years with the Dieselgate uh, scandal that has swept through the auto industry and has really uh, exposed a lot of the close ties between uh, politicians in both the, the center-right CDU and the center-left uh, social democrats uh, over the years with Germany's auto industry. And what you detect, especially you know, from a party like the Greens, uh, who have stood at arm's length from that and have suggested that you know the government really ought to be the government instead of a cheerleader for particular industries uh, within the economy. I think that you know, voters, again, are trying to look for a certain amount of honesty uh, in, in politics. And you know, that certainly is going to give us quite a lot to be uh, you know, following a bunch of these political stories around the world. But uh, we're, we're going to have to leave it there for today, uh, having run out of uh, you know a Monday's worth of, of global disorder to, to follow. But I would like to thank my colleague, Mary Anastasia O'Grady, for uh, joining the podcast today to talk especially about uh, a consequential election in Brazil over the weekend. I'm Joseph Sternberg, and on uh, behalf of Mary and myself, thank you for listening to Foreign Edition from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.